the reality of life is that you get to a lot of the places you wanted to be or you you were meant to be, but you would never have known it through things that went wrong. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. Welcome to the show. Our guest this week is Krista Tippett, host of On Being, the Peabody Award-winning public radio show and podcast. On Being opens up the animating questions at the center of human life. What does it mean to be human, and how do we want to live? Krista is also the author of Speaking of Faith, Why Religion Matters, and Einstein's God, Conversations About Science and the Human Spirit. Here's the interview. Hi, Krista. Welcome to the show. I'm glad to be with you. Yeah, thanks so much. I'm uh, I'm really excited to have you on. Your uh, your show on being is one of my favorites, and certainly one of the things that I looked to as we started this show. Something that I was uh, hoping to aspire towards. Mm. So, thanks for the great example. Mm, thank you. It means a lot. So, our podcast is based on the parable of the two wolves, where there's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson, and he says, "In life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle." One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and he thinks and he says, Grandfather, well, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. Well, well, first of all, I, I, I love that parable and I, I'm... I'm trying to remember when I first heard it. I mean, I think a few people have shared it with me. And actually, when I saw your podcast starting, I thought, wow, what a great title, because it's a wonderful image. And I guess if I think about it in terms of the work I do um, in public radio and um, as a journalist and with a background in journalism, um, I'm aware that the way we in the West defined news in the late 20th century, um, which was essentially, you know, the extraordinary thing that happened today and then generally turned out to be the extraordinary, extraordinarily terrible thing that happened today. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) because we, we've lived in this culture where 
we are bombarded by ever, you know, this ever increasing, um, you know, mass of information and news and bad news and the same bad news repeated over and over again. Um, we don't we don't internalize it as extraordinary. We start to internalize as what goes wrong as the norm. And, you know, and that the effect of the way we do news and information is actually to demoralize us and to paralyze us. And, um, you know, it, it, you want you want to feel compassion, you want to care and, and, and people do feel such anguish uh, and, and, su- and such a desire to be involved in their communities and in 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 making, um, you know, a more humane world. But but what comes at us through journalism often engenders exactly the wrong kind of effect. You just shut down and you say, you know, I'm going to take care of my family. I'm going to do the best I can. I, I, I cannot help. And that's wrong. Uh, and it's bad for us. And so one of the ways I think about my work and my show is that I try to look for I want to say not just the good stories, but a fuller story, you know, the, the whole story of what it means to be human in the 21st century um, has so much that is uh, thrilling and, yes, frightening, um, but, but so many ways that we can and must meet the challenges and the questions of our age. And so I try to draw out voices who, who bring that to the fore and, you know, not making things simpler, um, but making things listenable and finding human ways in to wrap our minds around this incredible world we live in. So I guess I'm feeding the good wolf in that sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that your your show is particularly known for is trying to, or at least my perspective, is trying to add a um, civilized voice to the discussions between science and religion. And you refer to those... Um, those two things is not necessarily giving contradictory answers to questions, but asking different questions. Could you elaborate maybe a little bit more on that? Yes. And I mean, this is another one of the, this is a form that we're so used to, but that's really gotten us into trouble is that we always set up, we set up everything to be a debate and we set up competing answers um, to, to duke it out and we draw out the most strident voices, you know, on either side of those competing answers. Um, but in fact, when you apply that method and that kind of way of thinking to the role of science in, in human society and the role of religion in human society, it's a complete distortion of the way these disciplines have worked across time and the way they actually coexist and, and, and are in relationship in, in our lives in, in so many ways that we think about and that, and that we never think about. Um, and, and yes, one of the points that is so important to me is um, it, it's actually not true most of the time that the way it works is not that you would present one question and that science would give one answer and religion would give another. I mean, I suppose the only question like that you know, if you wanted to be simplistic about it, would be if you ask the question, is there a God? But even so many of the scientists I know would say that it would be unempirical to state categorically that there is no God. And really, that's not that's not such an interesting question. Um, there's so many amazing things that both science and religion are looking at. And yes, when that happens, what they're doing is, is looking at something like... Um, 
you know, what it means to be human, um, where we come from, where we're going, these great existential questions, these great existential kind of uh, yeah, challenges, and, and science and religion probe these things in completely different ways. And um, so much of the time, I, I actually find their different, their different questioning, their different lines of questioning and their different answers to be complementary, um, at least to be to be uh, in relationship with each other or in conversation with each other. And I, I, I think, again, that all of us experience that in our lives. And it seems important to me that we realign the way we talk about this in public with, with, our, with our real intuition and experience. Yeah, our, our public discourse is not good around that topic, really, or m- most topics at, at this point. So Yeah, that's right, yeah. You mentioned listening as a spiritual technology. So um, tell us more about, about the role that, uh, what you mean by that, and the role that listening has played in your life and your own spiritual growth. Um, you know, when I say that listening is a spiritual technology... I mean that it is uh, one of these very essential ways. It's kind of an ordinary, everyday virtue, um, but it's it's an essential way that we can reach across the mystery um, of the other. And there aren't many things that we do in our lives that are more important than that. And and it can be with our own children or parents, or it can be with that stranger or that very different other in our community or in our world and in the world we live in now, you know, we are in very very real ways interdependent with strangers, you know, with strangers across the city and strangers across the globe. Um, And so listening is this absolutely essential tool um, that we need to cultivate um, to live into that gracefully, to live into the reality of our time. I, I do believe that listening is a, a spiritual virtue. I, I think it's something that um, we have to kind of relearn. Uh, we we live in a very noisy, busy world, and that you know much of that is not bad. It it is our reality. Much of that is exciting and full of possibility. Um, but it does it, it does force us if we want to become better listeners to create spaces um, where real listening can happen. And, you know, listening is not um, just about being quiet while the other person takes their turn speaking, (laughs) which is kind of what we've turned it into. Um, Listening is about presence. It's about really, really being present. Um, It's about all kinds of wonderful things like being open to be surprised, being open to be amazed. Um, it's also about some frightening things like, like being vulnerable. I mean, if you really go into an encounter or a conversation with a real intention to listen, um, you, you have to open yourself and you have, you don't have to set your personality aside or your convictions aside. You know, those are part of you as the person who's present taking that in, but you do you do have to be open to soften, and in a sense, you have to open to be changed. Um, at least, you know, again, not in necessarily giving up who you are, but making room in who you are 
and in your sense of the world for the integrity of these other words and this other person. So listening in that sense um, is a very basic tool, but it it's transformative. It's very challenging. I mean, it, I don't think many of us are very are very good at it. We had a guest on, uh, Rosalind Wiseman, who's done a lot of work with uh, teenagers, young boys, young girls, and she describes, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but you, you alluded to it there, listening is is going into a conversation with the uh, openness to be changed. Yeah. At least, at least yeah. go, you know, at least having your mind open to that idea. Whereas a lot of conversation, I think very much is I'm, I'm going to listen to you, then I'm going to make my point and then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And really listening, you're not listening. You're thinking all the time about what you're going to say next. Right. Yeah. And, and here's the thing, that's what we've been trained to do. Right. We, um, of course, of course we're not, Many of us aren't good listeners because it's it's not a skill that has been cultivated, right? Uh, I mean, neuroscience is on our side here because it says that that we all, actually all can be can keep learning and changing across the span of our lifetimes. But the the uh, you know the the downside of that is it says you have to practice. You know the ways you want to change, you have to practice. It's like throwing a ball; you get better at it by practicing it. And if we want to become better listeners as individuals and as a culture, we have to practice it. How do you listen while you're doing an interview? Because I find that to be one of the challenging things is I'm trying to listen and I'm also thinking about where the conversation is going and uh, you're very good at what you do. What's How do you approach that? Well, I mean, one thing I will say, just following on what I you know, what I just said is that I've been doing this for 10 years and I definitely have gotten better at that. And that, that really is a, um, part of the skill of being a professional listening, a professional listener, a host, uh, and a conversation leader that you are juggling a lot of things, right? You're, you're not just listening. You're also moving the conversation forward, you know, and I'm thinking about the narrative arc of the conversation. Um, I so a couple things. I mean, um, we we leave about ninety minutes for most of my first conversations. So um, and that that's really important. Um, now only about forty five minutes of that makes it into the radio show. But what that means is that um, we can I can relax into a space with someone where we don't have to immediately. You know, it takes a little time to warm up. Right. And and we can do that. So it's often true that the first 10 or 15 minutes of the conversation is not on the air. It's essential time to get to that that more intimate place we got to. Um, a real conversation is is messy. And if it has a little bit of adventure in it, you know, you may take some risks. And the other thing about having 90 minutes is that somebody can go off on a side road and and I can think to myself as they're doing it, boy, this is probably a side road and we may not use it, but it's prompt, you know, it's interesting. And, 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 and sometimes, um, those side roads lead to something completely wonderful and surprising that I wouldn't have known, you know, to make happen. So, so there is just this practical thing about creating the right container. Um, and then, uh, you know, the other thing I do, and I do think this is part of the container too, is I do a, a huge amount of preparation. You know, I, I read a lot. If people have written, I 
I try to take in other interviews they may have done, other ways that I can have a sense of who they are and really not just what they know, but how they think. Um, I think that when I come into a conversation with that sense of them, that even if you're talking to somebody across a phone line, somehow that communicates itself and so it's a it's it's to me that's like an act of hospitality, creating a hospital hospitable space, you know. And I think that a hospitable um uh presence just communicates itself kind of palpably. So and you know, the difference we all know the difference between sitting down with someone and you feel like you're going to have to explain yourself and you get into a certain mode that is somewhat uptight. Or you sit down across from someone and you sense they get me, you know, and and then you can relax. And then that's going to be a different kind of conversation. And then thirdly, I just say, you know, I do take all these notes into an interview. Um, but part of the point of preparing is to be so prepared that when the real conversation starts, you can put the notes to one side. And then they bec- they become more of a kind of roadmap and outline but really, I hope, and, and because I, you know, I can follow better what's happening because of all that preparation, um, but I hope to be so prepared that that I can set the notes to one side once the conversation really starts and for much of the time, just be listening. So it's a, it's a combination of all those things. Yeah. I- interviewing you is sort of like cooking for uh, Julia Child, so I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm doing my best here. <laughs> Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human-moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends 
safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. I noticed that a book that you talk about a lot in one of your favorite books is also one of my very favorites, which is Letters to a Young Poet. Yes. Yeah. Do you want to share maybe a, a thing or two from that book that, that most resonates with you and that might be uh, applicable to what we're, what we're talking about? Well, my favorite, favorite line, my favorite thought from Letters to a Young Poet is Rilke's, Rilke's idea of living the questions, of loving questions, of holding questions. And this has really formed me. Um, especially as I think about, not only as I think about what I do, but as I think about being a healing force in this culture that, as you and I talked about a minute ago, is so focused on answers and on competing answers. And in fact, we've kind of been trained and we've been trained to feel like, to start getting nervous, you know, if we don't have an answer to something pretty quickly. And if we have uh, if we have questions and we turn it into a debate and the debate ends and someone wins, or if we have some very complex, you know, challenge or development in our society, we try as quickly as possible to resolve it with a law. Um, you know, we take a vote. <laughs> and but so many of the things that we're dealing with, like we are just living in this amazing moment in time where we are re reposing the big questions. You know, what does it mean to be human? And the contours of our answer in the twenty first century and the ways we the ways we what we how we move through the world, even the practicalities of that are just radically different from um, previous generations. Um, so I find this idea of Rilke, you know, Rilke said, love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or books written in a very foreign language. And don't search for the answers which could not be given to you because you would not be able to live them yet. And so he said, now, the work now is to live the questions. And I just, I feel on a very practical human level, if we would just step back from all the things we think we have to fight about, you know, sometimes just all of us on every side and step back and just take in the fact that these questions we're raising are huge. Even something like, especially something like redefining the meaning of marriage just like stepping back and saying, wow, this is a big deal, you know, that we could all on every side say, what a big deal that in our generation, we're redefining marriage. And, and in that, in doing that, redefining family and redefining community and all of, you know, those things are huge manifestations of how we, how we pose and answer the question, what does it mean to be human? So, so to step back and dwell with this, I think, is to also let ourselves dwell with the questions and understand that they have power in and of themselves. And that um, on some of these things that we're taking up, um, that technology is forcing us, you know, technology is kind of blowing up a lot of things the way they've always been, whatever that means for the last 50 years. Um, uh 
and and I I think a lot of this is the, the big structural changes. You know, we can take votes. We can we can we can have de- winners and losers of debates. We can pass laws, but we are not going to have real deep consensus on a lot of these open questions. You know, maybe in our generation, maybe not in all of our lifetimes. I do think, however, that we could agree that we'd like to live into the questions together. And then it becomes, you know, then we start to honor the questions. And then we start to focus more on how we treat each other along the way while we hold questions. That's kind of, you know, in my little space, I think that's kind that's the... That's a virtue I'm I'm trying to cultivate. Yeah, that's one of my very favorite favorite parts of that that book also, and I like it taking it to a a more personal level with being comfortable with not knowing things yeah. in life, and it, and I, there seems to be such a people have I think we have such an innate desire to know are we doing the right thing or what's going to happen yeah. with this? And, and I, you know, I remember reading that when I was young and it just was so profound to realize, Oh, I don't have to, I don't have to know that. And it, it points to something else that you refer to a lot in your, in your interviews and in your writing, which is two concepts that I think are at the heart of um, a lot of spirituality and what we talk about. And those are paradox and ambiguity. So yeah. Do you want to share maybe a little bit your your view on on let's maybe start with paradox and the role that plays in spiritual development? Well, I'll just tell you that in the early days of the radio show, at one point, I think my producers like for, forbade me to use the word ambiguity. I was, <laughs> I was using it all the time, <laughs> but it's a very countercultural thing. And the truth is. Uh, so much of what is interesting and meaningful in life has a lot of paradox and ambiguity to it, right? I mean, the, the it, it's a myth. Of, like, it's not that we never have certainty or that we don't have moments of certainty, but they don't last, you know. And that's fine. That's the way life is. Uh, so you know, that in itself is part of the the paradox of of human existence that we that we really are driven to to want to know for sure and to want to have ground to stand on and that that calms us. Um, but, but the, the, the only real certainty is that everything will change. And so that's the great, you know, that's a piece of spiritual evolution taking that in that I, I actually think, I, I think, you know, the work you're doing and the work I'm doing and the work that it, all the people who we're interviewing and the people who are, you know, so many, so many people and all over the place doing all kinds of things are kind of moving towards that kind of reality base. Um, I don't know. I was talking, you know, I could, you can talk about paradox and ambiguity in, in almost any context um, to be more concrete about it. Yesterday I was, I was being interviewed actually by a, or an evangelical seminary, and what was it? They were asking me about. It was an it was an email interview. You know, it was questions and answers. And I'm trying to think what the question was. But anyway, what I talked about, and this is one of my favorite things to talk about. I was like, it was like the question was, how can, you know, how can our tradition um, be more constructive in a pluralistic world? You know, and I think that. 
for religious people in particular, um, that can feel just like a contradiction, right? Or like a tension. Um, you either are, are secure in your faith or maybe you have to give that up to, in order to engage with, with the religious other. And I just think that's a completely false, uh, choice. I, 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 because the, the paradox of interreligious and re, really meaningful interreligious encounter. And I think this paradox is there for all kinds of really meaningful encounter with difference. When you really connect and make a connection and a, and a relationship with someone across some divide or some kind of difference, the paradox is that we always, we understand ourselves better. We may even sink more deeply and interestingly into our identity at the very same time that we come to some kind of new openness and appreciation to this different other. You know, it's, you don't have to give something up. It's, right. it's a win-win. <laughs> um, but but it's, it's paradoxical. It's not intuitive. And, um, and it's also this kind of thing that unless you've done it, you can't believe it. It's hard to just present it as an argument. Um, but so many of the great things are like that. And spiritually, I think that this is, the, you know, the way I think about this is how, uh, you know, mystery, a reverence for mystery is such a huge elemental part of every religious and spiritual tradition. Um, and so even at the core of our traditions, they ask us to understand that in any given moment, in big ways and small, there will be things we under, we get and understand and are certain about and things we will not understand in this lifetime. So there's this creative tension that we're called to. Um, and I think it's an enlivening tension. And I actually think it's very relaxing <laughs> that mystery can be, you know, honoring mystery um, can be remarkably calming if you if you can give yourself over to that creative tension. Exactly. It's, a, it, it's more calming than the than the work of constantly thinking, oh, there must be something wrong if I can't figure this out, and how can I pin this down? Exactly. I was going to say it's that letting go of having to know. Um, yeah. One of our one of our early guests was Oliver Berkman, and he wrote a really uh, a great book called The Antidote: um, Happiness for People Who Hate Positive Thinking. And it's it's a really enjoyable book. I think you'd really like it. But one of the things he talks about is that if you could know everything that was going to happen to you in the rest of your life, even if it was all good, that would kind of take all the all the fun out of it. It would you wouldn't yeah. want to know that. You wouldn't want to know everything that was going to happen. Even though we often feel like, oh, I wish I knew everything. If that happened, you would lose a big part of being alive, which is exactly that mystery of sort of finding out what happens and and. And just in, you know, back to the back to the Rilke, enjoying the questions, living the questions. Yeah, and the the other reason that wouldn't work uh, is that is that the reality of life is that you get to a lot of the places you wanted to be, or you or you you were meant to be, but you would never have known it through things that went wrong, right? Through yep. things failing that you that you thought were right for you. And there's something so magical and beautiful about there's something also completely excruciating about it in the moment, usually. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not a straight line.
Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You've talked in the past about your, your battles with depression, and actually one of the things that you said about depression was that it taught you to look for things that you wouldn't have looked for, wouldn't even thought to look for otherwise. You actually had a, you also referred to, uh, depression and you were putting sort of a positive spin on parts of it calling it a uh, black pandora's box which i thought was 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 a wonderful uh way can you maybe share how that how that journey has gone on for you 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 wrote about it early on you know it sounds yeah. like shortly after you'd come out of it i'm curious years later how that how that battle continues to go well um so i i guess i guess the something that's kind of shocking um when you experience something like depression and and you you know you come out the other end but you're never going ever again to be somebody who doesn't know that that black place exists and is a possible place for you to go mm-hmm. and i you know just that and that's that's all, not so much in letters to a young poet but darkness the darkness that is part of life was also something that rilke is great about mhm um, you know, and um, so in that way, I have not had um, a, a, a kind of, you know, kind of clinical depression. I have not fallen all the way into that <laughs> again for a long time, but it never, it's always a part of who I am, you know, and I partly have not fallen into that place. I've certainly, you know, I think the thing is I certainly has stood on that precipice. The thing, the thing is, I know, I know where I'm standing now, right? And it's through a huge amount of self-care, you know, and self-knowledge. Um, and, you know, some of it very practical, just how much exercise I get and how much sleep I get. And, and, um, and I know the cost of, of overdoing it. Um, and then, I don't know, I'm in my fifties now and I'm, I'm finding, I, I, I didn't like the idea of turning 50 at all, but I'm finding, I am finding getting older to be this really wonderful thing where you just more and more can relax into things as they are and calm down. And, um, uh, I don't push myself as hard as I used to. I'm not as hard on myself as I used to. And that was a part of my depression. So there's something that happens with age that is healing. Um, but it's a huge, and, and it's in many, I mean, it's made me, this is one of the, one of the thoughts that comes through in all of my conversations is, you know, the things that go wrong for us 
become part of our capacity to be compassionate towards others. Like they become part of our gift to the world if we let them. Uh, and that's absolutely true of depression for me. I, I agree. Certainly the struggles and challenges I've had in life are a huge part of who I become. There's another thing that you've talked about that I that is right on topic with this that I really, I really liked. And you listed a bunch of people we would all recognize as great uh, teachers or leaders. And you say that they became what they became, not in spite of the hardships that they faced, but because of them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I don't believe in saints, and I I really love a I love a uh, I, I no I want to say I don't like the way we use the word sainthood or he, heroism or um, there's a phrase I love of Einstein he talked about spiritual genius um, and that it that's that the spiritual geniuses of the ages are more uh, more necessary to the dignity security and joy of humanity than the purveyors of objective knowledge and he was talking about Gandhi who was alive in his lifetime he was talking about Jesus and Moses and Buddha and Saint Francis of Assisi. But the thing is, um, whether you want to list saints or spiritual geniuses, whether it's Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King Jr., you know, or Einstein in his ways, these were all deeply flawed human beings, right? You know, saints aren't saints aren't born. You know that they and 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 that path to spiritual genius um, is won through being fully human. And wrestling with all the things that we all wrestle with, um, and that's just it's it's so it's so important to remember and not to put anyone up on a pedestal in that sense. Yeah, Gandhi has uh, Gandhi has a quote that makes me laugh every time I hear it, and he says that he was exposed to the principles of nonviolence nonviolence through his marriage, which which is just. <laughs> And actually, I think the truth is that's probably where he was least effective. <laughs> oh, exactly. Yeah, you you read his biography. Clearly, was not. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's just I I read that and I'm I'm sure he had yeah. meant that to be funny because it is really funny. Yeah. <laughs> probably not his wife though. <laughs> no, she may not have thought that was so funny. <laughs> the other thing you you were you just led into this idea of of spiritual genius. I'd like to ask you what. Spiritual is an interesting word that I never can find a better one, and yet I'm always curious as to how people define that word. Do you have any working definition of that word that works for you? Oh, it's a good question. Um, a lot of people used to ask me, 10 years ago when I started the show, there was a big curiosity about what's the, you know, what's the difference between religion and spirituality? And, and I don't, I don't hear people worrying about that so much anymore. You know, my, I think to give a short answer that it's a symbiotic relationship often, it's not necessarily an either or. Um, but I do think there's a greater, uh, I don't want to say tolerance. There's, there's a, that the word spirituality has taken on some depth and integrity in the culture at large that it didn't have just a few years ago, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, and I really think that the kind of spiritual, the searching spiritual energy of American culture has, it's really, it's, there's been a real evolution from, I mean, I kind of mean the, 
spirituality that's happening outside institutions, although a lot of it's also happening inside institutions. But, you know, from the from the new age of the 80s, uh, which was I, very suspect <laughs> in many ways, you know, it was really superficial. A lot of it, of course, not all of it. Um, I remember somebody talking to me about spiritual promiscuity, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought at the time I thought was a great phrase. But 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 there's been this evolution. And here's the thing. We 21st century people are have a freedom to choose and create our spiritual lives. That is completely unprecedented, right? Until not that long ago, our parents and grandparents were mostly, you know, spiritual life and tradition was inherited. It was like you had blue eyes and you not only were Christian or Jewish, but you went to this church or that synagogue that your parents and grandparents had gone to before you. Um, So, so we, we we're figuring this out, and I and I think there is an increasing amount of integrity to talking about spirituality again that happens outside traditional institutions, but also is becoming a force of renewal inside a lot of institutions, um, you know, challenge and renewal. And I don't know what do I mean. I mean, I I you know I think atheists have spiritual lives or can have spiritual lives. Some some of them might not want to use that language. Some of them are very happy with that language. Um, so it's definitely not synonymous with religion. I guess, you know, I think it's the inner work. It's the inner work that accompanies the outer work of our lives. The truth is that our traditions, our religious traditions and our spiritual traditions are these vast repositories that have been thinking about that and asking questions about it and creating rituals and creating communities around it for thousands of years. So they are these repositories and it's, you know, it's no accident that, that we turn to them or that, or that they are the places where people find this often in the first instance. We had a, we had another guest on who, who I don't even think he meant to, but he said something that just so hit me. I was like that. So it's my, my current working definition of what spirituality is. And he said, he said, spirituality is, simply the recognition that uh, happiness doesn't come from things on the outside. Yeah. And I was like, that kind of does nail it for me. It, it, it's that there's this interior life, that that's where, you know, the, the true happiness and true joy comes from. And if we're not tending that field, we're not going to grow those plants, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it might be interesting to start collecting definitions of that. Yeah, I know. I think it would be interesting, too, because it's a term that I agree with you. I, I'm becoming more comfortable with it, I think, as the times yeah. evolve, but I'm still not entirely comfortable with it because it's so, I guess, back to our yeah. earlier point about being comfortable with ambiguity, but it's yeah. a pretty ambiguous term. Yeah, it really is. Well, I think that um, we're, we're nearing our time here, so I wanted to thank you for... Uh, for coming on the show. Uh, the last thing I was going to get to, and I think we've covered it simply by doing it, is that you've mentioned that uh, you think that humor is a, is a spiritual virtue, which <laughs> I, I often think is a very underappreciated humor or levity, is a highly underappreciated spiritual virtue. And that's one of the things I like about listening to you is you 
you laugh often. Well, thank you. I When I first started my show in public radio, all these dour public radio programmers were so worried <laughs> that this would be too serious and so earnest. And, and some of them still say it is. And I, that just tells me they haven't been listening. But, you know, what I say is I have never met a wise person and wisdom is something you know when you see it, uh, who does not smile easily and know how to laugh, including to laugh at themselves. And then I did, uh, for years, one of my dream people I wanted to interview was Desmond Tutu. And I finally sat down across from him a few years ago. And he told me uncategorically that God has a sense of humor. And of course, he just embodied that. You sit with him and, and he's one of the most joyful, funny people you've ever met alongside all his gravity, right? Again, there's another paradox, right? Those two things don't cancel each other out. They enliven each other. And I have to say that when Desmond Tutu tells you God has a sense of humor, you believe him. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm now telling you. (laughs) I, I would, I would agree. I think that there there is humor, humor everywhere. And it's one of the very best parts of life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. I'm so happy for your project, and I'm glad. I'm honored that you want me to be part of it. Well, thank you so much. It's it's certainly an honor for us to have you. So we will uh, we will talk again. Thanks. Great. Take okay, care. Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye. You can learn more about Krista Tippett and this podcast at oneufeed.net slash Krista.